welcome back to the Cory Doctorow podcast. Back again from South by Southwest and all my other travels. Somewhat relieved, if not also disappointed, to say that my upcoming trip to Spain is off. I won't be in Madrid or Barcelona, but I'll tell you where I will be on the web on March 20th. That's Monday. Might be after this podcast goes out. I'm speaking at the Ostrom Workshop at the University of Indiana. It's their Beyond the Web speaker series that's organized by Doc Searles. On the 22nd, I'll be doing another live cast with uh, the Institute for the Future. They're changing the register series. I'm going to be in person in Chicago April 20th and 21st for the Antitrust and Competition Conference Beyond the Welfare Standard at the uh, Booth School, Stigler. And then we're getting into the events for the uh, Red Team Blues Tour. That's my next novel. You'll hear more about that in the intro a little later. There are a whole bunch of these, but there are just a few of them on the calendar so far. The first one is the launch on April 25th in San Diego at Mysterious Galaxy. And the other one that's on the calendar is in the UK. I'll be at Oxford at the big bookstore with Tim Harford, who's the great economist and writer. And I'll also be in London on June the 1st to do the Peter Kirstein lecture at the University College London. That's their annual computer science lecture. There's lots more coming, as I say, many cities, Canada, the US, the UK, but those are the ones that are confirmed and in the diary and announced. I'll give you the rest as they come up. What else is going on? Well, Red Team Blues comes out on the 25th of April, and I am behind the eight ball to get that Kickstarter for the audiobook done. Although finally, there's been some movement. We're racketing along here, and I've got the Kickstarter kind of third done, and I'm hoping to finish most of the work today. We're going into the studio to record, I believe, on the 27th. I'm going to be announcing who the reader is then, too. Uh, It's someone I'm very excited about. There are some delays in lining them up, which is why I'm so behind the eight ball. But there are going to be some very, very cool premiums for backers. There's obviously the audiobook, the ebook, the print book, signed print books. There's going to be an extremely, extremely limited hardcover, like four copies, bound in leather. I don't know. Should I tell you about it? Bound in leather, it's going to have a hollow cavity in it. The text will still be readable despite the hollow cavity. And inside that hollow cavity will be a tiny kind of a saltery sized, extremely preview edition of the sequel to Red Team Blues, The Bezel. And that is going to be limited to an edition of four. Everybody working on this is a legend. One of the greatest typesetters alive today, one of the greatest book artists alive today. And then Bruce Schneier, the legendary cryptographer, is going to do special cryptographic puzzles, one apiece for the inside covers. So it's going to be really something else. Um, there's also some tuckerizations, so naming rights for characters in the sequels. And there's also the chance to commission some stories set in the Red Team Blues universe universe. So that's a lot. It'll go live. Oh, gosh, I'm hoping midweek, maybe a little later. We'll see. And it's some exciting stuff. Other exciting stuff here at home. Well, our kitchen renovation is over. There's still a little bits and pieces to be done. They have to find shingles to replace the ones they had to tear off the wall when we discovered all of our front wall was rotten and had to tear most of it down to rebuild it. There's also some bits of trim and a transformer for a dimmer switch, but really we are basically done. We just need to unpack the boxes that we've been storing under the eaves for the last two and a half months, and we will be able to use our kitchen again. 
It is spring break here in the United States, and my kid has gone back to Toronto to see her cousins and her uncles and aunts and her grandparents. So we're empty nesters. But I'm also about to become a temporary bachelor because my wife is about to go to the Game Developers Conference in San Francisco. If you're there and you see her, please say hello. So that is the kind of status report. And now on to the reading for this week. This is a reading from a recent column from doctoro.medium.com. Gig work is the opposite of steampunk. They turn the cottage into a factory. Despite what you may have heard, the Luddites weren't technophobes. They were skilled workers, expert high-tech machine operators who supplied the world with fine textiles. Thanks to a high degree of labor organization through craft guilds, the workers received a fair share of the profit from their labors. They worked hard, but they earned enough through their labors to enjoy lives of dignity and comfort. 19th century textile workers enjoyed a high degree of personal autonomy. Their machines were in their homes, and they worked surrounded by family and friends, away from the oversight of the rich merchants who brought their goods to market. This was the original cottage industry. The factory owners who built their dark satanic mills weren't interested in making life easier for textile workers by automating their labor. They wanted to make workers' lives harder. Textile machines were valued because they were easier to operate than the hand looms that preceded them, and that meant that workers who wanted a fair wage for a fair day's work could be fired and replaced with new workers without the logistical hassle of the multi-year apprenticeship demanded by the hand loom and its brethren. As Brian Merchant documents in Blood in the Machine, his stunning forthcoming history of the Luddites, the factory owners of the Industrial Revolution wanted machines so simple that children could work them because that would let them pick over England's orphanages, tricking young kids to come work in their factories for 10 and 12 hour days. These children were indentured for a period of 10 years, starved and mercilessly beaten when they missed quota. The machines routinely maimed or killed them. One of these children, Robert Blinko, survived to write a best-selling memoir detailing the horrific life of the factory owner's child slaves, inspiring Dickens to write Oliver Twist. The Luddites' cause wasn't the destruction of machines. They fought for the preservation of workers' power over their bosses. They understood perfectly well what the machines did. Indeed, much of their criticism of textile machinery was technical in nature, decrying the defective fabric that emerged from these machines. But they were far more interested in who those machines did it for and who they did it to. I've written that science fiction is a Luddite literature, a genre that doesn't just ask, wouldn't it be cool if this gadget existed, but goes on to ask, How could people decide to use this machine? The machine's workings are deterministic, but the social arrangements governing the machine? That's up to us. That's science fiction. But what about fantasy? That'd be steampunk. If SF asks, what if the machine had a different social arrangement? Then steampunk asks, what would it be like if we could have the productive benefits of machines without their regimentation? 
A craft worker enjoys enormous autonomy. If they get a cramp or need a bathroom break, they can just stop. If they're hungry, they can eat. If the landscape outside the window is looking especially picturesque, they can stop and contemplate it, or even step out into the fresh air to enjoy it. Even the most labor-friendly, cooperatively-owned assembly line can't function if its workers do their own thing. The price of factory efficiency is autonomy. A worker in a multi-stage process has other workers upstream and downstream, depending on them to maintain the pace and regimentation of the line. Steampunk is fantasy in that it imagines lone craftspeople working with all the autonomy of the individual mad scientist, inventor, or tinkerer, but producing goods characteristic of the factories where workers had to check their autonomy at the door. That's a utopian vision, one that was especially enticing in the 2000s, when internet collaboration tools allowed thousands of strangers to engage in large collective endeavors, like writing an encyclopedia or an operating system, without any bosses, working at their own pace, relying on version control systems and wiki pages to coordinate their labor while they worked their tools in their crafters' cottages all over the world. This ethic of technophilia, labor autonomy, solidarity, and loose coordination was beautifully summed up in the motto for Magpie Killjoy's wonderful steampunk magazine, Love the Machine, Hate the Factory. The rise of gig work produced a massive surge of craft workers who toiled on their own premises, most notably the drivers for Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, and other delivery services, who worked from their own cars, assured that they were independent business people, able to book the hours and jobs they wanted. If the scenery caught their eye, they could pull over to the side of the road, get out of their cars and touch grass, and no one would even know they did it, much less punish them for it. The pandemic lockdowns accelerated this process as bossware made the leap from the low-wage, precarious black women who were trapped by Arise's predatory home call centers to all kinds of white-collar workers who were told that they were working from home, but who were really living at work. Bossware, technology that monitors every click, every keystroke, and the streams from your device's cameras and microphones, is everywhere today. Even so, blue-collar workers have it the worst. They are the chickenized reverse centaurs, forced to pay for their own working equipment, then minutely monitored down to their facial expressions and minutely choreographed down to their eye movements to make sure that their bosses are getting every penny's worth of value out of their bodies. This is truly the opposite of steampunk. Somehow, our bosses have invented a form of craft labor where you work from your own vehicle or home using equipment that you pay for that has all the humiliations, dangers, and petty authoritarianism of the industrial factory. This is the worst of both worlds. Under the New Deal, factory workers teamed up with progressive regulators to force the owners of giant factories to share the efficiency gains of the assembly line, creating the large firm wage premium, where workers at big companies made more money, not less. 
Today, the large firm wage premium is dead. Workers are moving out of the factory back into their homes and cars, but those homes and cars are being transformed into factories thanks to camera and mic-studded digital devices that monitor workers more closely than even the meanest, pettiest foreman could. It needn't be this way. The Luddites presaged the steampunks, imagining technology to liberate, not to enslave. Technological tools could be labor organizers' secret weapon, shifting power back to the workers. The problem isn't what the technology does. The problem is who it does it for, and who it does it too. Okay then, I'm off to work on my Kickstarter, which with luck I'll be able to tell you about next week. Hope you have a great week, and... Talk to you later. You've been listening to the Cory Doctor Podcast, licensed under Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, share-alike US 3.0. Or as Woody Guthrie put it in another context, this song is copyrighted in the US under seal of copyright 154085 for a period of 28 years, and anyone caught singing it without our permission will be a mighty good friend of ours because we don't give a dern. Publish it, write it, sing it, swing to it, yodel it, we wrote it, that's all we wanted to do. Many thanks to John Taylor Williams for mastering. That's Rynex Studio, W-R-Y-N-E-C-K Studio at gmail.com. John Taylor Williams is a full-time self-employed audio engineer, producer, composer, and sound designer. In his free time, he makes beer, jewelry, odd musical instruments, and furniture. He likes to meditate, to read, and to cook. Talk to you next week. <laughs>